We are beginning a new series this Easter season that will take us through much of the summer as well. We'll be walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We won't be going verse by verse in this rich telling of Jesus' life story, but we'll cover a great deal of that story. So I want to encourage you right at the very beginning to consider reading and rereading, even reading multiple times Matthew in the weeks and months ahead. You won't be disappointed. There is so much in its chapters and who Jesus is really leaps off the page. Now the reading this morning does perhaps not quite support that claim that it leaps off the page. It begins with a genealogy. Nick did a fantastic job with all those names. There's a lot of the fathers of there. And we'd be tempted probably to like gloss over that, just scan it and move along very quickly. But there's actually a great deal of important information in this list of names. There's a great deal of information that forms and informs the story that Matthew tells. One of the things that we've been enjoying in our house during this COVID-tide season has been the British TV show Walking Through History with Sir Tony Robinson. It's fantastic. And in one episode devoted to this region of Scotland and focused on the system of clans there, the point was made that where a more mainstream Britain person might ask, where are you from? Or perhaps, what do you do by way of introduction? In Gaelic, and as a result of the clan system, the primary question of introduction is, who are your people? Who are your people? Matthew's genealogy answers such a question regarding Jesus, telling us who his people are. And in answering that question, there are two pieces of good news I'd like to focus on, two primary things. This opening genealogy shows us that Jesus has deeper roots and a wider reach than we might have imagined. Deeper roots and a wider reach. First, deeper roots. Matthew here, you may have noticed, makes a big deal of the number of generations. In verse 17, he points out how there have been 14 generations between Jesus, the Messiah, and the exile. 14 between the exile and David and 14 between David and Abraham. Three sets of 14. There's actually some creative uh, bookkeeping there to make that work. Matthew leaves out certain names, and even the numbering, how he counts, is a little bit unclear. But even with those questions, the point is that Matthew sees in Jesus, in the life of Jesus he's about to recount, the culmination of something that's reaching far back in history, into the history of God's people. And the number 14, a multiple of seven, this number of completion in Hebrew imagination, Matthew's suggesting that history is coming to completion, to its good and glorious end. We might ask, what precisely is Matthew getting at? Well, three distinct features in history are named. There's Abraham and David, verse 1. Jesus is a, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then also the exile, named in verse 17 and also in verses 11 and 12. Abraham and David, of course, are, are both these key figures in the history of God's people. They're each recipients of specific promises from God, as Noah was in our Old Testament reading. 
For Abraham, the promise is that God will make his descendants great in number and a blessing to the whole world. You can see that promise in Genesis 12 and 15. And to David in 2 Samuel 7, God makes the promise that one of his descendants will be forever on the throne of an everlasting kingdom. So promises to be a blessing to the nations and an indestructible kingdom. Good news. And Matthew's point here is that Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, is the fulfillment, the completion of these promises. He's the one who is a blessing to the nations and who establishes this kingdom without end. Those are two features to keep in mind as we move through Matthew in the weeks to come. In Jesus, God is keeping the promises he has made, the promises of old. What about exile? Well, exile breaks the chain, right? The line of names is interrupted with this exile into Babylon. And we might think the fulfillment of God's promises is interrupted by exile. Exile is a difficult concept for many of us to grasp, depending on our cultural background, our family experiences. Perhaps it's less difficult in this strange season. In the novel, The Man in the High Castle by Philip Dick, there's described this alternate history where the Axis powers have won World War II and the United States has been partitioned into sections ruled over by Japan and Germany. And the power of the book's opening passages arises from reading of this recognizable America where the experience is one of loss, dislocation, defeat, and alienation, where there's frustration and longing. Exile. The exile is an existential event in Israel's life. There's defeat, there's the loss of agency, the loss of land. Most profoundly, perhaps, the loss of this sense of being with God. Notice in the genealogy that we read, that there is no return from exile. If you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know there was a physical return. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of it. But that physical return is not a feature of the story Matthew is telling. In a profound and real sense, the exile is not ended. There's still this sense of loss and alienation, of unrealized hopes, incomplete promises. This sense of frustration, frustrated hope, animated so much of the world that Jesus inhabited. It helps us make sense of both the expectations and the opposition surrounding him in the story that Matthew tells. We're skipping next week to the Sermon on the Mount, but there is all this agitation around Jesus in the gospel's early chapters, flowing out of this frustration and expectation, denied, Longing, denied hope, exile. The point for Matthew is that Jesus, this one person, is the means by which God's promises are now being fulfilled. And more than that, that in Jesus, all that frustrated longing, all that fragile hope is now being satisfied. Not in ways people want or expect necessarily, as we'll see, but Jesus is the completion of these promises made way back, and he's the undoing of these centuries of shame, failure, and sin. Who Jesus is and what he does has deep, deep roots.
How might Jesus' deep roots actually be good news for us today? That's a legitimate question. Two thoughts, assurance and completion. The continuity that Jesus shares, the deep roots he has, offer us assurance. You know how stores and restaurants, uh, remember them? Remember stores? Remember restaurants? Stores and restaurants often will have logos with their establishment date. Established in 1968 or 1825. What they're communicating is assurance. We know what we're doing. We've been around a long time. We're going to be around. Trust us. Twinnings Tea advertises they've been making tea for 300 years. On the other end of the spectrum, I saw a restaurant sign the other day that billed itself as established in 2018. I'm not sure that communicates the same assurance. But Jesus stands in continuity with the ways of God in history. His establishment date goes way, way back. And he stands in continuity with the way that God has looked upon and responded to his creation. It's there in our Genesis reading. Faithfully, graciously, with care and attention, with sacrificial love. This is God's consistent posture toward his creation, toward you, reliably. And Jesus is the fullest expression of that with deep roots extending back in history, a proven track record. Think of a friend who's gone on a first blind date, relaying to you what happened. And at the end of that first date, they recount how the other person looked across the table in their eyes and says, I love you, I'll be with you always. Put aside the obviously stalkerish aspect of that. But think about how unconvincing, unreliable those words would seem. They just met, like who does this person think they are? But compare that though with the spouse of decades who utters those same words, perhaps in relation to some difficult health diagnosis or situation. I love you. I will be with you through it all. After years of persevering in difficulty and suffering through hurts and betrayals, how much more reliable that promise is. I will be with you always. In the Gospel of Matthew, when we're struck by Jesus' compassion and mercy, by his care for the lost and most vulnerable, when we read his words at the end, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, there is a solidity, a consistency on display that goes way, way back, deep roots. There's a reliability to these qualities, these words. They're done, they're spoken by the same one who promised Abraham and David, by one who does not yield or change in his gracious posture toward you, toward me, toward all that he has made. Deep roots means continuity of care. It means continuity in care. You can be assured of the consistency of God's goodness towards you. The second thought is completion. I've, I've talked about this a little already, but in Jesus, the, the promises of God are completed, are being brought to completion. When Jesus cries out and yields his spirit on the cross in Matthew 27, the work is finished. 
the work of fulfilling the promises, of undoing the exile, the weight of our sin, it is completed. What he has done is enough. You do not have to do any more work to that end. This is a season of profound disappointment and uncertainty. Some of you will have read the Harvard Business Review article from a few weeks back about our collective grief. Lost lives, lost health, lost jobs, lost opportunities. Whether great or small, we all have things to be named and grieved. But this is also the season of Easter. And in that season, we name that the work is done and is being brought to a sure and certain completion. The promises are being fulfilled. Earth and heaven will be made one. Jesus' resurrected life is the first glimpse of that. God's purposes will not be frustrated, not by exile, not by pandemic, not by any disappointing reality. In Jesus, all is being brought to completion. So that's all deep roots, suggesting assurance and completion. And just by way of closing, I want to touch on Jesus' wide embrace, an embrace that's wider than we might have expected. Of all the names listed in this genealogy, four in particular stand out. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife mentioned in verse 6, Bathsheba. Alongside Mary, they're the only women who are mentioned. But beyond their sex, what is striking about these four is that three are foreigners, not Israelites. And Bathsheba, the fourth, is married to this foreigner. And all are associated with controversy of some kind. Broken promises, impure bloodlines, even prostitution and adultery, murder even. Their names are all stained in some way with moral compromise and innuendo. They're not the kind of people whose names would be included in this telling of a glorious history. Anthropologist Susan Friend Herring has used the phrase repugnant cultural other to name a phenomenon we all recognize. It captures precisely the place these four women occupy. They're outgroup members and do not belong. This phenomenon is, of course, alive and well in our world. The Wall Street Journal recently published an article titled A World of Hardening Borders, describing the way COVID-19 has inflamed fear and division. The French are spat upon in Germany. There are attacks in the UK, here in Australia, against people of Asian ethnic background. Restaurants in South China refuse African customers. These actions are rooted in our own attempts to gain or preserve a place of seeming security and belonging. The designation of someone else as repugnant, not belonging, is rooted in our own insecurity, perhaps even a sense of our own stain. We fear not belonging, and perhaps deep down we have the sense of not deserving to belong. So it helps us to point to others who deserve even less, belong even less. The primacy of place these women hold here in the genealogy plays out in the life and ministry of Jesus. 
The whole of Jesus' life is the drawing in of those who do not belong, who are morally deficient and don't deserve. Drawing such people into the promises, drawing them into the blessing and kingdom, drawing them into belonging, drawing us, drawing you and I. In Christ, we are baptized into the story of Abraham and David, Judah, Rahab, and Tamar. Names of renown and names of ill repute. That is a good and beautiful thing. Jesus is God's yes to his promises and yes to those who do not belong in them or deserve a share of them. Jesus is God's yes to you. The words at the very beginning of our reading, at the very beginning of verse 1, this is the genealogy, can also be translated, this is the book of origins, or literally, the book of Genesis. With those words, Matthew extends the history of Jesus back far beyond even David and Abraham to the very beginning. But with those words too, Matthew looks forward and announces just what it is that Jesus is accomplishing. New creation, new life, a new age. An age in which you and I have a share. Whatever our stain, our repugnance, whatever our lack of belonging, an age in which you and I can belong. So to return to that question, who are Jesus' people? They are all who would receive him. All who would confess and believe he is Lord. All. And his people are those who are drawn into, who come to share in his deep roots, the culmination and completion of God's good and sure promises. And they are those who enjoy the wide embrace of the living God. This Easter season, let us enter into that embrace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.